We're going to be continuing our series through 1 Corinthians, so if you'd like to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be picking up where we left off, left off last week, which is at verse 12. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34, on page 5, excuse me, 961 of the ESB Pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, we thank you that you have breathed out these words of Scripture and that we are able to open your word up and, and study it, hear it proclaimed. Father, we ask that it would sink into our hearts, that you would give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit so that we would not just hear these words and walk away, but, but hear and understand and apply them. So Father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I think we've all had times when we have failed to think something through. And I'm not just talking about big life decisions, those that's terrible when we fail to think something through like that. But I'm just talking about uh, just ordinary day-to-day -day things. Maybe we've all at one time fell for the, uh, the uh, prank where we're, we're holding a cup or a glass or something in our left hand and someone asks us, what time is it? And we turn and look to check our watch and we dump whatever's in the cup because we haven't thought it through. We just acted instinctively. Or then there's the, the classic uh, going outside with an umbrella on a windy day. If, we, if you've ever been in this position, there's a cold, rainy, windy day, very stormy out, and you just want to keep dry, but um, when you go outside, you, the wind immediately grabs the umbrella, rips it violently out of your hand, or you, you manage to hang on to it, and the wind just, just collapses it, and it, it breaks that, that small metal frame, and hyperextends it and just, just collapses it backwards. I think we've all been there. But if we have thought it through, if we've taken the time and thought, it's extremely windy outside, I'd like to stay warm and dry under this umbrella, but if I open this up and I go outside in what amounts to a giant wind sail, it might not work out. Think it through. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12-34, Paul tells the raw believers to think it through. There, at least some of them were, were denying a bodily resurrection, and so Paul walks them through that very carefully. He, he, a couple of if-then statements, he says, look, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus, had, Jesus hasn't been raised, then, then there's no resurrection for, for anyone. There's, there's no gospel there's, there's no faith. There's all kinds of catastrophic consequences if, in fact, Jesus has not been raised from the dead. So Paul corrects this wrong thinking with truth. He affirms, yes, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. But then he goes beyond affirming the resurrection. He speaks to the representative headship of Adam and Jesus. He goes on to talk about the work of Christ as Jesus subdues his enemies and restores the kingdom to the Father. So there's quite a bit packed into our passage. 
and we want to get started on it. So here's 1 Corinthians 15, 12-34, as he calls them to think it through. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is addressing some believers, some raw Christians, who are denying a bodily resurrection. And he begins with several if-this-then-that type of statements. And you could hear that as we moved along. Verses 12 through 14. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So some of the, the believers apparently had a, an issue with, with this doctrine. Maybe they were confused about how believers are raised, how that exactly works. Uh, what, what do you mean? We are our actual physical bodies? That, that doesn't make sense to us. Or, or maybe some of them were still confused about the resurrection of Jesus because Paul went to great lengths in verses 1 through 11 to, to hit that pretty hard. He was, he was affirming. I remember all those stacked witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But regardless of how they're confused, he, he decides to throw several of these if-then statements. The resurrection of Jesus is a fundamental part of the gospel. That's what he proclaimed in 1-11. through So he says, if Jesus rose 
from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if that's true, then our preaching and your faith are in vain. The preaching of the gospel is in vain. Everything he showed them, if you were here last week, that slow motion gospel replay, everything he walked them through, that, that's all in vain. None of that matters. In vain means worthless, empty. Or to, to put it another way, the, the preaching of the gospel is vain. To put it another way, Paul is saying, okay, let's, let's say you're right. Then, then I, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and, and not just me, all the apostles of Jesus Christ who are directly commissioned by him, sent out, and given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this, this doctrine, this foundational teaching, they're all wrong. But you're right. So he's challenging them. Does that sound right to you? You've been a Christian for, what, a couple of years? And all the apostles are wrong? I don't think so. Oh, and also your faith, that's also in vain or worthless or empty because it was the apostolic preaching that led to your faith. If, if the preaching of the apostles is wrong, your faith is built upon the foundation of that preaching. That means your faith is wrong. Your faith is also empty, worthless, in vain. Think it through, he's telling them. Think it through. These are catastrophic consequences that come from not believing in, in the resurrection. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Raised, excuse me. Paul then says, if, if that's true, then, then myself and all the other apostles were guilty of lying about God. That's blasphemy. Because we are preaching that he was raised. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. That's a repeat of verse 13. Verse 17, the first half, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's a repeat of the last half of verse 14. And then the second half of verse 17, and you are still in your sins. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, think it through. Let's, let's push this to its logical conclusion. You say there's no resurrection. All those other things I pointed out, this one also is true. You're still in your sins. He's saying this doesn't just affect some part of the, the future of, of your, your life in Christ and, and your salvation about a bodily resurrection that will occur someday. That all, this also impacts what you've been told is true in the past because you've been told that you've been saved, sanctified, washed, justified. If Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins. You've not been saved. You've not been washed. You're not sanctified. And you do not stand before God justified. Think it through. He's telling them. In verse 18, and your brothers and sisters who have already died, that's what fallen asleep means, they're gone, perished, destroyed. It means to be ruined, to come to a miserable, permanent end. And then verse 19, if they've put their hope in this resurrection-less Jesus, if, if that's all it is, if, if your faith is, is in, in something that's just good for here and now, that it, it's very short-lived, well then, 
you're basically, your faith is simply um, a pep talk that you give yourself while you live this life and has no, no eternal value, has, has no lasting benefit. Your belief doesn't save you, and we are of all people most to be pitied because we would be believing in a lie, Paul's saying. So think it through. There's a lot writing on this doctrine of the resurrection. Well, here's his response, verse 20, which is a truth claim. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The truth is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so for the next several verses, he's going to lay out the implications of of Jesus' resurrection and where this doctrine ultimately ends up in the end. So he begins by talking about the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we understand that this letter was written to these raw believers in Corinth, which was a busy city, but they would have still been very familiar with these agricultural references. And that's what first fruits is. This was a non-industrialized society, no electronics, no, no machinery, uh, other than wooden, uh, maybe some very simple machines. But uh, they would have understood these agricultural references. That everyone, whether you lived in a city or not, or in the country or not, you, you were immersed in this idea of seasons and harvests and crops. So in ancient Israel, when a, when a crop was planted and it was time to gather uh, the, the fruits and they would go out into the, the fields or the, the groves or, or wherever their crop was planted they would gather some of those very first uh, uh, fruits or, or produce off the vine or off the stalk or the plant or wherever it was being gathered and they would bring it in and they would inspect that fruit the, the nature and the quality of that fruit was indicative of the nature and the quality of, of the harvest that was going to take place after, after it. So those were the first fruits. They would have collected you know, olives or um, wheat, barley maybe, um, maybe some grapes. Today, here in Illinois, we probably could think of something like corn. So if, if the farmer went out into the field and he, he pulled an ear off the stalk and he, he pulled the husk back and he, he looked at the cob and he saw some kernels that were small and and kind of shriveled, and, and maybe big spots on the cob where there weren't any kernels at all, that's not a good sign. It's not going to be a good harvest this year. But if he took that ear off and he, he pulled the husk back and he saw these big, plump kernels that were just bursting and, and filling the entire cob, okay, looks like we're going to have a pretty good harvest. So the, the application then is Paul saying this, this practice of gathering the first fruits can be applied to Jesus and his followers. Jesus died and was raised. He is the first fruits. His resurrection not only shows us the nature and the quality of our resurrection, we're going to be raised to life, given a a glorified body, but it also demonstrates that our resurrection must surely follow. It's a guarantee. It's because we're united with Christ. The Bible speaks of Jesus as our head. He's the head. We are the body. It's impossible for the head to go somewhere and the body not to follow. We are the body. Just as surely as Christ is raised, we also are going to be raised. And just like the farmer bringing in those first fruits uh, was was a guarantee and a sign of of the greater harvest that's going to happen, uh, Jesus also, one man was raised, but, but he is a, a sign and a demonstration of the greater harvest of all those who are joined to him by faith 
are also going to be raised. It's a, there's a greatest, greater harvest on the way. And then in verse 21 through 22, he brings up this topic of what we call federal headship. In the spiritual economy of God, he has eternally purposed and decreed that there would be two, and only two, representative heads. Adam, the first man that was created by God, made in his image and placed in the garden, is representative head number one. Jesus, the Son of God, is representative head number two. That's it. Adam or Jesus. There's no other option. So what we can say is that every person who has ever lived and who has ever died, died with one of those two men as their representative head, either Adam or Jesus. All people who are alive today are under one of those two representative heads, Adam or Jesus. Now, Adam is our default state. Every single person who was ever born is born under the headship of Adam. We're, we're, it's our spiritual default state. Um, as Adam fell into sin, so as he, as he fell, that, those effects of that fall are, are felt by everyone who comes after him, everyone born after Adam, and that's all of us. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are from that point forward reckoned by God as being in Christ and having Jesus as our representative head. And all the benefits that come from being united to Christ are applied to us. So here's the easy way to remember that, short and simple. Adam by birth, Jesus by faith. Adam by birth, Jesus by faith. That's it. We're either we're in one of those two categories, one of those two groupings. Uh, the Bible talks about this elsewhere. Here's Romans 5, 18 and 20. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, that's Christ. For as by one man disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So it's a consistent doctrine that's taught throughout Scripture. Two representative heads. And here in our passage, he's applying that representative headship to show us that those who are in Christ by faith and who have Jesus as their head will be raised. They will be raised to life. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Jesus goes first. He's the trailblazer. He's the pioneer. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. We, we talked about the king returning, the, the gospel as a summons to make peace with the king while there's still two time before he returns. When Christ returns to him, all belong, all those, when Christ returns, all those who belong to him, those who are in Christ by faith, will be raised. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Verse 24, then comes the end. This is talking about the end of the world as we know it. Well, what constitutes the end? We can just keep reading. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule, and every authority and power. 
Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We read that in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. So we don't want to skim over that first part. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Why in Jesus' exalted state has all authority been given to him? The answer can be found in an illustration. Think about the the Roman Empire. In in ancient times, let's just take the Roman Empire for example, when uh, something like a rebellion happened, and it happened in, in empires, a rebellious movement would spring up and the emperor would send out one of his generals to put down the rebellion. And he would send the general out with full support, full resources, full army, cavalry, chariots, swords, supply lines, uh, temporary tents, housing. I mean, you name it, he got it. He got whatever he needed to put down the rebellion. And he was charged with restoring order and the emperor's rightful authority in that region. So the general was given the emperor's full representational authority to act on his behalf, and he would go out with the sword, and he would not return until all the enemies were defeated. And the emperor's reign was restored. In the same way, Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to put down all rebellion within the kingdom of God to destroy all the enemies of God, to restore creation so that it is under God's rightful authority. And that's what verse 27 means when it says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. It's actually a quote from Psalm 8, 6. You'll see that footnote if you have an ESV. Jesus has been given all authority to complete this mission, to complete the mission of destroying all of God's enemies and restoring complete order and and God's rightful reign in all of creation. That's why he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We can also hear echoes of Psalm 110 in this this language here. Um, Psalm 110, 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, in the ancient Near East, and there's a couple examples of this in Scripture, when a king would go out, or, or someone acting on the king's behalf would go out, and they would defeat an enemy, sometimes on the battlefield itself, but other times they would bring it into the king's throne room if they really wanted to make it official. And the king would put his foot on the, the, his enemy's neck and stand there, usually right before executing him. It was the ultimate power move. It was the ultimate display of, I won, you lost. The winner is standing on the neck of the loser. And then the loser gets executed. Until I make your enemies your footstool. It, it, this, is, this is a brutal display, almost, of power. Placing your foot on the, on the neck of an enemy. Thus, Jesus has been given the kingdom of God and is charged with defeating every rule, every authority, every power, all things sinful and evil that, has, that have made their way into creation since 
the fall. Everything that is that is creeped into God's good creation, Jesus is going to put down. Adam was originally created in the image of God to rule and reign as his vice regent. He was created in the image of God to act on God's behalf and, and to rule creation and to reflect the righteousness of God in that rule. Adam failed. And so we need a second Adam. We need a perfect Adam. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to come in and rule and reign righteously and to reflect um, God's righteousness in all things. So Paul is saying that the Adam, excuse me, the second Adam, Jesus, has been given the task of restoring the kingdom of God, and he will most certainly accomplish his work on behalf of God the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit. He will continue his work until all enemies have been defeated, including Satan, including death, which is what verse 26 says, that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. When God's people are raised and reunited with their glorified bodies, they will live eternally with God and each other forever. When all things are subjected to him, verse 28, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. There's a lot of subjection going on there. That God may be all in all. So what this is saying is after Jesus has accomplished his work, all of God's enemies have been destroyed. All things in creation are now in perfect order. Everything is in perfect righteousness, perfect subjection to God. Then Jesus will be like the returning general, victoriously returning to God the Father, glorifying the Father with a successful completion of the mission. Everything that God the Father had sent him to do, all in all, meaning God's rule, God's reign, God's will, it will be perfect, it will be complete in all of creation. All of creation will reflect God's good created order. And if you're a believer, you are longing for that. When we look around this world today, we long for Jesus to return victoriously and for things to be all in all. We long for God's perfect created order to, to be fully established in every corner of the universe. We long for that. And then abruptly, in verse 29, Paul returns to, to challenging them with, with some of these absurdities about the, the consequence of not believing in the resurrection. It's almost like he's saying, I can't believe you believe that. I, I just can't get past it. He, he jumps right back in. He said, then what do you mean by people, uh, what do people mean by baptizing people on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is a notoriously difficult verse to, to interpret. Um, one, one commentator, one scholar has said there are almost 40 different, four zero different interpretations and understanding of what this verse means. I'm not going to go through all 40. I'm not even going to go through the major uh, possibilities because there's really no benefit from doing that. Um, it, it would take too long. I, I do want to affirm this strongly, that baptizing people on behalf of the dead or baptizing people by proxy for those who have already died is completely inconsistent with everything the Bible teaches on, on baptism. So if that's what was going on, if people were actually baptizing some people on behalf of other people who had died, then Paul is simply mentioning it, he's citing it without endorsing it. He, this is not a good thing that Paul's behind. However, I, I'm not sure if that's what was happening. I'm not sure if that's the right understanding of this verse because there is no record of it. 
Um, there's, there's nothing in the extent literature that, that would lead anyone to believe that this was a common practice or even a kind of a, a, a fringe practice in the church at this time. There's just nothing there. So that, that's rather odd. But whatever was happening, it served Paul's argument because it was a practice inconsistent with the belief that the dead are not raised. So we're going to leave it at that. In verse 30 and 31, still on the topic of bodily resurrection for believers, he's saying, if it's true that there is no resurrection, if it's true that, that nobody's raised from the dead, what's the point to, to life? What's the point? And, and then he points to himself. He said, why would I place myself in danger on a regular basis? If this is just a big pep talk that we're giving ourselves, if, if, if religion is just a, a crutch that helps get you through life and the hard times, and some people need it, some people don't, if that's, the, if that's it, what's the point? Why am I doing this, Paul's saying? He says, uh, by, just as surely as my pride or my work in you through Jesus and the gospel is valid, I die daily. Paul says, I'm, I'm constantly in danger. That what, if I, what is gained if I allow myself to risk death, such as fighting the beasts at Ephesus? And this may be a reference to, to human opponents. Sometimes they do that. They talk in terms of animals and beasts. I think that's probably the case. His opponents at Ephesus. He's asking, what do I gain if on a human level, with no hope of a resurrection and eternal life, what do I gain by subjecting myself to all these hardships and dangers and pains? The answer is nothing. If the dead are not raised, and then he inserts a quote from Isaiah 22, 13, where it says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In its original context, that was uh, displaying the, the hearts of those who were living unrepentant lives, who didn't want the God's people that, that were rejecting God. But his point here is that if there is no resurrection and our faith is in vain um, and all those other consequences are true, all those catastrophic things that just have gone terribly wrong, but in addition to that, there is absolutely no motivation whatsoever to live righteously. If there's no final judgment, if all we have is this life, then you might as well let it rip, um, go for it, and, and yell yeehaw because anything goes. And then he follows that immediately by do not be deceived, bad company ruins good, good morals. That may be a quote from a, from a comedy, from an ancient comedy, but it could also just be simply a proverbial saying that he expects his readers to be familiar with. But the point is, don't deceive yourselves. If you run with this crowd, if, if you hang out with, with people who believe that there is no resurrection, there is no any, anything substantial after, after this life is over, they're going to live like that, and after a time, so are you. The, if you think there's no judgment, no consequences in this life, it's not going to be long before you start living like that. Where the mind goes, the body follows. He closes with verse 34. Wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. This is Paul's way of shouting at them. Snap out of it. Come to your senses. Think it through. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying your position, uh, denying the resurrection, reflects that you really don't know anything about God. You, you, you've missed this. You've missed the gospel. You've missed my proclamation. If you think this and everything that follows... 
You've missed it. You, you have no knowledge of God. You're nullifying your own faith. Your belief is going to eventually lead you to live unrighteously. And also, by the way, he's implying, and I think that it's a good, pretty solid takeaway, you're harming the church. Stop it. The, the Christian life is hard enough to live without people weaving themselves into the church and, and telling them that there is no resurrection and you can do whatever you want and, and, and it, none of this matters. I mean, he's saying you're going to harm the church. So he ends by saying, I say this to your shame, which used to be a way of, um, you know, kind of an effective means of getting people's attention and exerting some social pressure from those around them by shaming them. And we have to remember, this is a public letter. This would have been read to the church with everybody sitting there. So those that deny the resurrection would have been sitting alongside those that held to the resurrection. And Paul would have said, to to your shame. So maybe it would have had some direct effect on them as they read it. Think it through. A summary of this passage would look like this. Paul is telling the believers that if you take the resurrection away, you take away everything. Christ's resurrection apostolic preaching, the faith that believers profess, the forgiveness of sins, and any hope of living rightly before God, Paul corrects them by affirming the resurrection of Christ and linking this truth with Jesus as our representative head, who among other things serves as an example and a forerunner to our own resurrection, which will occur at his coming. Christ the King will return, and he will bring all creation into subjection under God's rightful rule. Paul concludes by pointing to his own life and how it would not make sense without the resurrection, and he calls on those who are in error to stop sinning. Everything I proclaim to you, he said, every, everything you say you believe, it just doesn't work without the resurrection. Think it through. No resurrection, no risen Savior. No risen Savior, no faith in gospel. No faith in gospel, no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins, no escaping the wrath of God. Think it through. Put those things together. Well, as believers, we have thought it through. As believers who have been called by God, we we don't have to to think it through and and try to regain the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. We're we're gung-ho for the resurrection. We're all for the resurrection. We get it. If you're not in Christ this morning, then my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will convict you of your sin and your need for Christ that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to, to the, the King who is returning and to the fact that without Christ you are still in your sins and, and under and in Adam. But for those of us who are in Christ, we need a couple application points. One is, is this. This is a glimpse of the future that awaits all those who are in Jesus Christ. When believers die, our our souls are perfectly sanctified. They're made holy. We are immediately passing into the presence of Jesus Christ. Our bodies remain in the ground or whatever final resting places our, our bodies end up until the return of Christ. When Christ returns, the Bible teaches that there is a, uh, a resurrection from the dead. We are, we arise, we're transformed. Our souls are reunited with these resurrected, glorified bodies and we will be recognized as belonging to Jesus. And we will be declared innocent. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism, Q&A 37, says this, What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers raised in glory will be publicly recognized and declared not guilty on the day of judgment and will be made completely happy in the full enjoyment of God forever. Publicly recognized. The Bible teaches that at the resurrection, Jesus will divide all humanity. Sheep to the right, goats to the left. Those in Christ, those in Adam. Those saved, those not saved. But we will be publicly recognized as belonging to Jesus. And we will be acquitted, declared not guilty, exonerated. Because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Not because of what we've done. Not because we're good people. But because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So praise God for our salvation. This is the future that awaits all believers. And that's a very powerful takeaway. The other part of the application of this passage, I think, is to recognize that Paul is making a truth claim. Paul, he's giving us a lot of doctrine. This is packed full of all kinds of things. But in the end, as we, as we break this down, he, he's trying to get them to think it through. And in the middle of it, he gives them, like I'd say from the 20, uh, verse 20 through 27, he's, he's giving them this truth claim because it's what they needed to hear. They were in denial of some, some major doctrine and, some, uh, and consequently uh, related doctrines. And so he hits them with a truth claim, an absolute black and white, no compromise truth claim. That's what they needed to hear. Jesus is alive. He is king. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You're either in your sins or you're forgiven. So Paul gives them this, this truth claim and says, wake up, snap out of it. As we proclaim Jesus, especially in this month of Christmas, we proclaim the birth of our King. Here's our message. A bold, uncompromising truth claim that accompanies the proclamation of Jesus born in a manger. Yes, we celebrate Christmas as the birth of our Savior. Yes, absolutely, we do that. Jesus was born in a manger, but he didn't stay in a manger. He is the second and perfect Adam. He was crucified and died for, for our sins, and then he rose again from the grave. He's given all authority in heaven and on earth, and like an ordered general going forth from God the Father, he is gathering his elect and destroying every rule and every authority and every power that is in rebellion against God. When he returns and brings this world to an end, all people will be raised and recognized as either with him and belonging to him or against him. So the gospel says, make peace with the king now before he returns. And it's too late. That's a bold message. It's a truth claim. And it doesn't leave any room for fence posts sitting. Maybe the world desperately needs to hear both a bold, hard truth claim. Every year, probably aware of this, uh, every year Merriam-Webster's dictionary declares a word of the year. And they, they announce it to everybody. It's, it's a word that's been used. And I think it's the word based on the most looked up over the past year. And the word of the year for 2022 is gaslighting. 
Now, I had heard this in the past, and I thought I kind of knew what it meant, and I kind of did, but I didn't know completely what it meant. And so I, I looked it up. Um, I'm not speaking of this term in any kind of cultural or political sense, um, in a, in a non-spiritual way. I'm not making any statement. I'm, I'm going to read a part of this definition. I want us to hear this and look at it with a spiritual lens. Here's a definition. Quote, manipulating someone so as to make them question their own reality. End quote. Like the reality that we live in a world created by God in six days? That we're made in his image? That we're morally accountable to him? And that we're not the product of, of evolution from animals over millions of years? That, that kind of a reality? Manipulating someone as to make them question their own reality. It continues, quote, The gaslighter tells victims that others are crazy and lying, and that the gaslighter is the only source for true information. Where have we heard that before? Don't listen to those Christians. They're crazy. They're lying. Jesus is not the only way. There is no judgment. There is no such thing as sin before a holy God. Live how you want to live. There are no eternal consequences. Don't, don't listen to the church. Don't listen to those Christians. They're lying to you. It continues, quote, someone who presents a false narrative to another group or person, thereby leading them to become misled. Normally this dynamic is possible when the audience is vulnerable, such as in an unequal power relationship. Satan is more powerful than anyone who ever lived. Talk about an unequal power relationship. What's the conclusion from all this? Satan is a gaslighter. He's a master gaslighter and he's been doing it from the beginning. Satan does not want anyone to reflect on life. Satan does not want anyone to think it through. He doesn't want anyone to start making connections between personal sin, accountability to God, the reality of Jesus and his resurrection and a final judgment. He doesn't want anybody to pay attention to any of that. He wants us to just busy ourselves with things like entertainment and sports and politics and hobbies, love of pleasure, love of money, love of comfort. Keep reaching for that perfect body. Keep, keep reaching for that perfect house. Keep reaching for that perfect fill-in-the-blank. Just keep scrolling through your phone. Please, don't think about God. Just keep consuming the next bit of never-ending content that has no lasting value. Just keep being influenced by Christless influencers. That's all he wants. He's a gaslighter. He's trying to deceive and yet in our hearts, we know that it's, an all, it's all a distraction. Our, our soul longs for truth with a capital T. And here it is, a rock-solid, uncompromising, black-and-white truth claim from God. This goes beyond someone asking you if you observe Christmas or why, why you have that, that tree saying, yeah, I observe Christmas because it's a celebration of the birth of Jesus. It goes beyond that. It says, I, I'm so, I observe Christmas because it celebrates the birth of Jesus who went on to live a perfect life and he went on to the cross and died for our sins. He rose from the grave and he is the rightful king of this world. He is physically returning 
to the earth, and when he returns, it will be the end of all things. Now he calls all people to repent of their sins and turn to him in faith, and he's told us there is a right way to live, and there is a wrong way to live. And the right way to live is to follow Jesus in faith. Join yourselves to his church and start walking him with him in obedience to his commands. That's a truth claim. And it may be exactly what the world needs to hear. Let us proclaim it. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the birth of Jesus as we, we head into the Christmas season in December. But we ask that you would help us not to stop there. Let's not stop the message at the birth of Christ, but continue, as the psalmist said, to recount your wondrous deeds. How he lived the perfect life on our behalf. How he went to the cross and took the penalty on our behalf. And how he rose from the grave and is returning to gather all those who belong to him. Father, help us proclaim this message in our own words with the boldness that can only come from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.